Hello, everybody. This is Scott Yates, Director of Communications and Producer Relations for the Washington Grain Commission, here with episode 202 of Weed All About It, or what I'm calling the one and only Kim Garland Campbell 2, about my enjoyable conversation with the USDA research geneticist based on WSU's Pullman campus. At the end of last week's episode, you heard Campbell talk about the Club Week Collaborative with the Japanese that has been organized with the help of the WGC. The kickoff of the project in May 2018 was a big deal with dignitaries galore. I know, I was there. But you know who wasn't there? The person who did much of the organizing, Kim Campbell. You see, as it happened, her husband Tom who she met in the Peace Corps, suffered a heart attack the night before the inaugural collaborative meeting. Needless to say, she was at the hospital. Tom has recovered, and with other surgeries, Campbell said he now refers to himself as the Bionic Man. Perhaps appropriately, Tom collects antique clocks. I learned this as Campbell and I were speaking virtually, and the clocks in her house began peeling the hour. The interview stopped, of course, but you might be able to hear a few dings and bells. Breeders are fond of describing their efforts as building on the shoulders of giants. And those giants don't have to be American. I was struck by Campbell explaining that the stripe rust resistance found in the club variety Breel came from a Hungarian cultivar. Ahead, Campbell and I talk about quality which reminds me of the Ford commercial from the 1980s where a narrator intoned At Ford, quality is job one. The same is true for Club Wheats and Campbell. Quality, not yield, not disease resistance, not height, not maturity, is the first thing she looks at in making her selections. And frankly, she believes that yes, we can have both yield and quality. Campbell and I went into the weeds quite a distance during a discussion about the two types of soft white wheat cultivars as identified by their gluten proteins, called 510s and 212s. But you won't find it here. Too complicated. But she does allude to the two types ahead. For our purposes, just remember that 212s are softer than 510s. But at export, both are mixed together in cargoes of western white, which is 20% club, 80% soft white. Campbell and I continued the second part of our conversation with me relating a conversation I had with a WGC commissioner. He had listened to one of my podcasts in which I said that chemical seed treatments like Vitavax and its successors have largely eliminated bunt and smut diseases in the region which were once very severe. The commissioner suggested I had given the short shrift to breeders who worked to introgress resistance into the plants themselves, like Briel's stripe rust resistance. Certainly, breeding resistance into a variety is the preferable alternative, given that farmers then don't have to pay for the chemicals to treat the problem. But it was my belief that when it came to breeding for bunt and smut resistance, the approach really wasn't successful. So I asked Campbell to referee the question. She began by recalling Orville Vogel's efforts beginning in the 1930s and continuing through the introduction of Vitavax in the 1950s. You'll hear her refer to Dr. Allen. That's Bob Allen, her club breeding predecessor, and also Clarence Peterson 
Vogel's technician, who became WSU's first winter wheat breeder. What Dr. Vogel worked on for his whole career was bunt resistance and smut resistance. It was a real challenge, and Dr. Uh, Allen will talk about it too. He says he really didn't like working with it, so he left it all to Clarence Peterson, you know. <laughs> and so we did work very, very hard on breeding for those diseases. But when Vitavex came in, it was a game changer because uh, you could treat the seed, and then they, it, the bunt and smut wouldn't um, wouldn't be a problem. And so what it did is it freed us up to work on other things. And that's when we all, that, well, Dr. Allen first started working on eye spot resistance, the strawbaker foot rot resistance that he brought in with Madsen. And he worked, uh, he was able to devote a lot more time to stripe rust resistance. And I wouldn't say that we're ignoring bunt and smut. Like we actually still screen for it. Um, we send material down to uh, Dave Hole at University of Utah to, or I think it's actually Utah State, sorry, to um, evaluate it every year for dwarf bunt resistance. And uh, we're, we're able to see bunt in our head rows at Spillman. We still get a lot of common bunt. And so we're able to um, screen against it. But it's not the uh, critical uh, resistance that it used to be. We can release a susceptible line now and know that we have the seed treatments for it. I, there are a few um, reasons why we want to keep some resistance around. One is in the organic market. We need to have bunt resistant material. And the other is, you know, people are concerned that if the bunt was able to mutate and overcome the seed treatments, then we'd have a problem. And so far that hasn't happened anywhere in the world. So I think um, it's not a very likely scenario, but I do no, for the organic market, we need to keep some resistance around. So. Okay. All right. As I understand it, Kim, club wheat has its compact head shape as a result of a single gene. Is that right? Yeah, it's primarily due to a gene on chromosome 2D. It's called the C gene. And that's the, the main driver. There, there are modifications. Like when I make a, actually a cross between Kara and Zerfa, I get all kinds of intermediate head types. So there's some other genes involved, which I haven't quite identified yet, but the main gene is the one on 2D. Okay. Is that single main gene responsible for the different quality of soft white versus club wheat? No, not really. The quality is something that has been incorporated into it by the breeders, you know, first by Dr. Allen and then by myself really pushing certain quality characteristics. The the seed shape quality, you know, where the uh, FGIS looks at the shape and can say, yes, this is club or this is common, that is driven by that gene. And you talk about how the breeders, yourself and Dr. Allen, have been able to improve the quality. I mean, it just seems that the quality of club is perhaps head and shoulders above soft white. And I always have wondered why the breeders of soft white have not been able to introgress as many quality traits as you and Dr. Allen have been able to do. Well, I think there's a couple things. One, one is that actually soft white wheat, there's a, a real variation in quality, but I'm not, I'm not saying good quality, bad quality. It's just differences. A line like Eltan has the 510 subunits or, or auto, and it's, 
they're they're fairly strong wheats, so they're very useful if they're segregated out for like making crackers and um, and uh, pizza dough and things like that. Whereas a limes like um, well, other uh, a lot of the lines out of University of Idaho actually have the two twelve subunit, and they have very very good quality, and they're um, more useful for making the cakes and the types of products that the club wheats are associated with. So that's one thing is that I don't know that you want to make everything to be the same as the club wheat quality because that other quality is really valuable. The other thing is that actually breeding for quality, it does take a lot of, um, you know, you, we have all these different traits we have to look at and we prioritize them in the breeding program. It, every time you put a lot of pressure on one group of traits, you you tend to reduce the variability that's available to put pressure on another group of traits. And so in my program, I prioritize the quality because if I don't have good quality, there's no reason to release anything. And so it's about the first trait that I look at. And then I start looking at everything else. Um, whereas in, in the other, in the soft white programs, you know, they know they have to make it soft, but they can put a lot of pressure on another trait, like maybe just plain grain yield or or something like that, and then, you know, go along with quality. I don't think it's that hard to put a lot of pressure on quality early, and I, I don't really think there's a reason why you, you need to release bad quality wheat. In fact, there isn't a reason. I don't know of any reason. <laughs> you, just, you just need to breed... For it, and uh, you can still get really good yield. And you look out there at the soft whites, and you'll see some of the highest yielding soft whites on the preferred quality list. So, other breeders have proved that they can do it. They just need to incorporate it and do it consistently. So, okay, all right. We've uh, talked about Briel a couple of times now. Now, mm -hmm. Briel was the most widely grown wheat for many, many years. It did not come out of your program. It was released by Steve Jones. What's the background there? Clarence Peterson, who was P Steve's predecessor, always had a few clubs in the program. And the old line Hiller also came out of Clarence's program. And so what they did is they basically took a line that was kind of closely related to Hiller and they crossed it to a line closely related to Eltan. And they were trying to get a wheat with snow mold resistance, a club wheat with snow mold resistance. And this is because the growers up um, north of Route 2 really do need snow mold resistance, especially over, you know, north of, a north of Wilbur, up in that area. So my program, which was under Bob Allen at the time, hadn't worked with snow mold resistance because it takes a lot of effort to do snow mold resistance. And, and then also... Snow mold, while it's, um, this was my perception for a long time, but while it's an important disease in that part of the state, on a whole cropping area level, it's, it's not the major disease. Like eye spot is a much more important disease. Stripe rust is, a, it affects many more acres, you know. So my program was more focused on eye spot and uh, cephalosporum stripe and stripe rust whereas Steve's program was really focusing in on snow mold at that time. And so he developed Briel and released it. And, uh, you know, Briel I always thought was very interesting because it came up well, it tillered well, it, has, it still has very good strike rust resistance. And it had this snow mold resistance, not as good as Altan, but still something better than anything that any of the other clubs had. 
So it became a very, very popular wheat. Now, I, I will admit it was always a little ironic to me that it came out of that program rather than my program, but I can appreciate those good qualities and why growers would choose to grow it. And and where does Briel get its excellent stripe rust resistance from? And, and why is it so hard to breed another variety with equal resistance to stripe rust? Well, it's actually not hard to breed another variety with equal resistance. But, Brielle, you know, I, I really would wish, I, I do wish I knew where, we have, we have to figure that out, where <laughs> what genes are conditioning the resistance in Briel. They're, they're coming from this uh, line called, I'm pretty sure, that's called NS something, something, something. And I believe that line comes actually out of Novosad, which is in Hungary, I think. And it was a line that was in Clarence's program and he had crossed to it. And both Bob Allen and I are pretty convinced that, that that's where he gets, that's where Briel gets the stripe rust resistance. But we don't know how that stripe rust resistance relates to the other stripe rust resistance that we work with. Um, that's in Madsen, for example. But I do think that you can look at club wheats that I've released and also the common wheats that Aaron has released and see some extremely good stripe rust resistance that's not related to the resistance in Briel. So Briel Anchorage has declined since our bad falling number year of 2016 mm -hmm. because of its susceptibility to late maturity alpha amylase. But that was four years ago, and we really haven't had a bad LMA year since. Are you concerned farmers will go back to Briel because of its stripe rust resistance and yield? Uh, no, because actually, if you look at the yield data, we've replaced it now with Pritchett. And Briel consistently isn't at the top of the clubs out there anymore. I do think that those growers up in, in the snow mold area, they're still growing Briel because uh, they need that snow mold resistance. And Pritchett isn't as good for snow mold resistance as Briel is. So... We are, we are, have been working very hard on that. I think I now make like five or six trips up to, um, Waterville every year to rate things for, for snow mold. And we actually have a line in the variety trials this year that has good snow mold resistance. And I think it'll be a, a nice replacement. And it's, it's yielding better than Brielle pretty consistently too. I really do think Brielle's time has passed largely because we have other lines that yield better than it and have better resistance to falling numbers. Terrific, terrific. So you have been very active in research investigating falling numbers, specifically late maturity alpha amylase. Given that we haven't had a bad year in a while, is that research taking a backseat to other topics? No, definitely not. Because, you know, the thing about the falling numbers issue is you ignore it and it sneaks up and bites you. <laughs> so... The, the really the only way that we can control that problem is through genetics and genetics isn't something, you know, breeding isn't something that we can have a problem and then solve the problem next year and say, oh, here, you know, here's the answer. Breeding is such a long-term effort that we have to incorporate selection for resistance throughout the whole program. You know, we, uh, the ARS hired a new scientist. She's a seed physiologist, Ashley Cannon, whose primary thing is to work on LMA and uh, and the pre-harvest sprouting and the influences on the two and see if she can de define some really good breeding targets for us. But in the meantime, we've ramped up all of our screening assays in the mid-level parts of the breeding program. So we went out this year for Aaron, Mike, and 
and my program and selected heads and did spike wedding tests in the greenhouse. And they were able to get us that data before we made selections, which was great. And we've really got a lot going on in the project with falling numbers right now. Okay. All right. So in your virtual field day demonstration this year, I saw the club wheat line that Bob Zemetra, the breeder at Oregon State, has been developing. Why is it that Oregon and Idaho just don't plant much club wheat? And do you expect that to change? There's a couple reasons. One is because the grain elevator space. <laughs> so, And I didn't appreciate this until an elevator operator over here on the over here on the Palouse clued me in. But so over here, we have spring wheat and winter wheat and uh, a little bit of hard wheat, but we also have peas and lentils and, and garbs. So you only have so many bins to put things in. And then when you start trying to segregate out club as well, it's like you, one of them has to go. So a lot of the areas where you see club grown over here are where growers have their own on-farm storage and they can harvest it and keep it and then market it as the market develops. Whereas out in central Washington around Odessa and um, that area, they, they're used to handling club, you know, so they always have bin space for clubs. And so that's one thing driving it. And I think that also affects Oregon and Idaho. And then the other reason is that the club wheats for a long time had been developed really primarily for that kind of traditional club area which kind of does center in Odessa and radiates out. And so they tended to mature too late for down south of the border, kind of. And even in Idaho, you know, a lot of Idaho's wheat production is down on the Camas Prairie and, and Tammany Flats and stuff like that. But the, so that's what Bob was targeting, is he wanted to develop, develop a line that was earlier but still suitable for the area kind of around uh, Mora, Oregon, and that, that area in Sherman County. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Due to high premiums in the past, upwards of $5 a bushel, actually, mm -hmm. several countries quit taking Western white, which of course is a combination of 20% club wheat and 80% soft white. That included the Philippines and Taiwan, and they are now tendering for low protein soft white. What are countries losing when they don't get the Western white blend? You know, the one advantage of club is that it all pretty much comes out of the same breeding program in the same environment, even if we talk about lines that Bob is developing, you know, because he's crossing to my lines to develop it. So it's pretty much the same genetics. So it's extremely consistent, much more consistent than soft white would be. The other thing is that we breed for this 212 subunit that we were talking about earlier. So that means that even a higher protein club wheat is still going to function very similar to a low protein soft white wheat. And um, so that consistency and that strong breeding, and, and the other thing I breed for a lot is low water absorption, which means, you know, like uh, when you send a cookie through the oven, it's actually going to lose all its water and become crispy at the end of the oven line, and you don't have a problem with that. So those are the kind of two big things, low, low gluten strength, the low water absorption, and the other thing is this really high break flour yield, which is the cake flour of a, of a wheat kernel. <laughs> at your virtual field day presentation this year, it appears there is a trend toward earlier varieties. Does a shift in climate have anything to do with that? 
Um, I think so. This is, um, I was watching the yield data for, um, you know, the last few years and it became evident that the lines that are earlier maturing are tending to uh, do better in the yield trials in, in the Washington variety trials. This is especially true when you look at the Palouse and then down into Walla Walla, but even out to Connell and that area. And I, I think one of the reasons is because they're able to mature and escape the heat. And I think the, uh, the heat that comes in July and August. And then I think the other reason is because they get up and going a little earlier in the spring and can take advantage of the earlier warm up that we have. And if you look at climate, well, weather data really uh, over the last 20 to 30 years, you can see there's frost free date is backing up, you know, so it, we're, we're getting a longer growing season, but it's primarily on the front end. So I became convinced that we need to breed for earlier maturing uh, wheat. But then we had these two years in a row, 2019 and 2020, where the, the season was actually very late. And the later maturing wheat, when you look at the trials, is actually doing better these last couple of years. Maybe what we're really looking at with climate change is this increase in variability, you know, and we just kind of have to have a little bit of everything out there. But I, I still think breeding for wheats that can take advantage of that earlier uh, growing season would be useful as long as they don't get themselves into trouble with late season frosts. And so mm -hmm. there's kind of always a trade-off with everything we do in the cropping system. This was a perfect year to have a spring club variety available as the premium for club increased after last fall's planting was completed. I believe it was spring wheat breeder Kim Kidwell who released JD. Any plans for you to release spring clubs? That was another thing that I talked over with Mike Pumphrey when I first got here. Actually, I talked it over with Kim, too, when I first got here. So she had started this spring club breeding program in conjunction with Bob Allen. And, um, and we kind of reevaluated it when Mike got here. You know, it's really difficult as a, as a plant breeder to uh, work with both winter and spring crop because, you know, at the exact time when you're trying to be out there spraying herbicide on your winter crop, you're supposed to be planting your spring wheat. And you, are, uh, har you harvest your winter crop, and then you still have to harvest your spring wheat, but you're trying to plant the winter crop at the same time, you know. So we decided it was better to keep things divided based on growth habit and let Mike continue with the the spring clubs and he's got he's got some really nice spring clubs he released melba a few years ago he's working really hard on incorporating hessian fly resistance into the club wheats which i don't believe jd or melba has hessian fly resistance and so and if you've heard him talk recently he considers that to be a essential trait now so i think he's got some lines in the variety trials actually that meet those criteria what about the quality of spring clubs? Uh, isn't their protein higher? Is anything else different? The protein can be a little higher depending on the year because protein is really driven with how much moisture we have in the system. And so, you know, if spring wheat in general is often affected by not having enough moisture, um, but Mike uh, understands the quality needs for clubs. And so he's pushing it as hard as I am to get the low gluten strength and the high break flower yield and, and also to get the um, this, the head type correct so that it grades right. So. so there are four private companies who are working on developing soft white wheats, but none 
that I know of that are working on clubs. With fierce competition for market share and yield being the number one consideration for farmers, are you afraid club will fall further behind in the yield sweepstakes? Um, well, I think all breeders are a little worried about where our lines line up next to our com- competition, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I'm not that afraid of it. I've, I've never tried to make the, well, when I first got here, the clubs were definitely lagging way behind. They were like a good 10%. You know, they were always at the bottom of the trials. So my goal was to put them in competition and I've, I've told the, the um, commission, you know, I want them to be in the top third of the trial. I think I've managed to stay there even in the last 10 years when we've had increased competition. In fact, I was really proud this year at Lamont. We had club wheats in the top three, you know. So, <laughs> And um, sometimes when people see that, they're like, huh, we don't think that trial was run quite right. But, <laughs> but I do think they were run right. And you've seen this year where the club wheats, both, all, all of them actually were very, very competitive uh, with the soft whites. So I'm still aiming for that top third of the trial. So far, we've been able to hang in there. I, I think we can keep it up. Um, we'll, we'll see going forward. But <laughs> yeah, I was a little worried when they were talking a lot about hybrid wheat and kind of wondering if I should do hybrid clubs. But actually, I the club head type is like the exact opposite of what is good to make a hybrid wheat. I just don't think there's any way biologically I can make a hybrid club wheat. So we're not going there. <laughs> so Kim, neither one of us is getting any younger and certainly I see retirement somewhere out there on the horizon. What about you? <laughs> yeah, people keep asking me that. In fact, there was a rumor that went around at, um, I think it was the WSCIA convention a couple of years ago that I was going to retire any day. Rich Koenig, I wasn't there. Rich Koenig sent me a panicked email. But <laughs> um, I don't actually uh, want to retire anytime soon. I have a lot going on. And I do have some friends, wheat breeder friends who are retiring, you know. And I was talking to my grad students and I said, you know, as long as I have, as I stay curious and I have things to do and I would like to better incorporate some of these new tools, breeding tools into my program like genomic selection. And I'd like to really get stripe rust figured out. And I'd also like to know more about the actual club wheat gene, like what actually is it doing biologically in the germplasm. So I have a lot of questions. The other thing is that I really want to, because breeding is such a long uh, thing, I want to leave the program in really good shape for the next person so that um, I have a lot to do right now with incorporating good database management into the program, organizing, you know, making sure that every cross we made, there's a, a real good record of why we made that cross and what we were going after. So the next person who comes along can uh, make sense of what we were up to. You work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service. Now, does the ARS actively support your winter club wheat breeding program, or would they prefer you focus on work as a, quote, research geneticist? Oh, no, they really like the club wheat program. They, um, for one thing, it has a lot of impact. It's really easy to point to it and say, you know, USDA did this for you. (laughs) But the other reason is the breeding programs in the USDA don't compete directly with industry. But as you pointed out, industry isn't working on this crop. And the the breeding programs in the USDA do work on orphan crops, which club wheat can kind of be considered. Any crop that doesn't have a lot of industry investment is considered that. 
Um, and it has such, it's so important to the uh, market economy of the Pacific Northwest that it's a, it's, uh, it's an obvious thing to work on for the public sector. So have you got any kind of commitment from the ARS that they'll replace you when you do retire? Um, I don't have a direct commitment, but I do know when I first got hired, I asked Kay Simmons, who was our research leader at the time, how stable this position was. And she said, she laughed and she said, Kim, they'll get rid of the whole unit before they get rid of the breeder. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Anything else you want to add here, Kim? I think the only other thing is, you know, when I was considering whether to take this job or not, a good mentor of mine, Pat Lips, who actually got his degree at Washington State under under Briel, um, said, Kim, you have to go there. It's the it's the best place in the world to work with wheat. And, you know, I've been here 21 years and I agree. I think it's not only the best place in the world to work with wheat, but I have really about the best job in wheat breeding. Um, you know, I get to I get to do a lot of science. I get to work with great growers and, and people, and I get to, you know, talk directly to the people who buy our wheat. So I've been really happy to be here. Campbell's happy, farmers are happy, and that makes me happy. I hope you enjoyed the two-part conversation with Kim Garland Campbell, a suburban youngster who grew up to be the world's only club wheat breeder. Wow, what are the odds, huh? After you think about that, Please join me here again next week for another episode of Weed All About It. We're all children of a special treat, a miracle of nature that we just call wheat. A crop that's in the Bible, a crop that's in our bread, a crop that's filled our bellies and held us to the dead. Through a history of salvation in times of want and woe, Lots of problems when we have enough to eat, but there's only one dilemma when it's not enough wheat. We feed you.